So session 12, loved. Uh, Jesus saves all who come to him in faith. We'll be in Luke chapter 7, verses 40 to 50. Um, this is a jump. We've been in uh, like Luke 6 and Luke 4. Uh, so we've jumped and we've, we've skipped a few events. Uh, we're not going to go back and look at the events, but I'm going to try and paint us a little picture because these events leading up to what we're looking at today in Luke 7 um, is the backdrop. So Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 49, is the Sermon on the Plain. It is very similar to the Sermon on the Mount, which is in Matthew chapter 5. But this is the Sermon on the Plain. So Jesus gives that sermon essentially twice. This is up in Capernaum. So it's in Galilee. The Sermon on the, the Mount is in Jerusalem. The Sermon on the Plain is in Galilee. And they're very close, almost identical word for word in their recordings, but they're two totally different um, things. So Jesus is out in Galilee. He gives a long discourse uh, of teaching. And uh, the people really begin to rally around him, and they're following him in huge crowds. Then we get to Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. Uh, Jesus comes into town, and a uh, Roman centurion has a servant who's dying. And this Roman centurion was a member of the local synagogue. He was not Jewish, he's Roman, uh, but uh, he was a believer. He was a, he was a <coughs> convert to Judaism, but he hadn't gone through the whole process. So he wasn't circumcised and all of that. So the, the leaders of the synagogue approached Jesus on his behalf, that he has a servant that's dying and he would like to see him healed. Now, um, I think that tells us a lot about this guy. He cares enough about a servant to see him healed. Uh, this is kind of the, um, I, I don't know that it's the basis for the story of Ben-Hur, where the, the Navy Admiral for Rome saves Ben-Hur and, and, and that whole thing, but this is kind of it. Here's a Roman centurion. This guy is the captain of a Roman league, of a, of a Roman um, century, and he's concerned with a servant enough that he goes to the synagogue to ask his friends, the leaders of that synagogue, to approach Jesus to heal the guy. But he doesn't feel worthy. And he tells, he tells Jesus that, that just say the word and my servant will be healed. You don't even need to come. Um, which Jesus is, you know, what, what was Jesus' response to that? Wow. <laughs> yeah. Where's the faith in Israel like this? I mean, you're, yeah. you're, you're a Roman and you've got that much faith in me. And he heals the servant. So this is, this is what I said. This is the backdrop to, to the passage we're looking at. Jesus then leaves. That's in Capernaum. And he leaves and goes to a small village called Nain. Where as Jesus is coming into the village, there's a group coming out of the village. And it's a funeral procession. And there's a, the mother, she's sobbing because this is her only son. She's a widow. She's got nobody. 
And apparently he's a young man. I don't know the, the, the understanding there. I don't think he was a child, but he was probably maybe in his early 20s, late teens, but not a, not a small child. And they're, you know, they're upset and all that. And Jesus is moved to such compassion that he raises the child from the dead. Uh, which, as far as I can tell, this is the first case where Jesus raises somebody from the dead. Which blows everybody away. Um, they're, they're just like, wow, wait, who, what in the world? Um, they're just astounded. So, because large crowds. Remember, he was preaching the sermon on the plain. Large crowds are following him. He goes to Capernaum and he heals this Roman centurion's servant from a distance. Which, that was pretty amazing, but nobody really saw anything. I mean, you maybe overheard the conversation. But now they're wandering along, and he, he raises this, this boy from the dead. That's Luke 7, 11 through 35. So that's what's been happening. So now we come to uh, Luke chapter 7. We'll start in um, 36 through 39. Somebody will go ahead and read those for us. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at, at a table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invented, or invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known... Who and what sort of woman is this who is touching him? For she is a sinner. All right, thank you. So he gets into this town of Nain. Just performed the most astounding miracle, raising this boy from the dead. And one of the local Pharisees is like, wow, invite him to dinner. I'm going to talk about dinner parties. Get us some background. We need to understand them in order for this story or this uh, passage to make a lot of sense. Dinner parties were exceedingly important in the ancient world. Um, it's actually uh, a breach of great etiquette to decline to attend a dinner party. You just didn't turn somebody down. People went to great expense. It's actually talked about um, several Roman governors that bankrupted themselves giving lavish dinner parties. First of all, they were male only. Women did not participate in dinner parties. It was men. Um, even if it was a, a, like a family dinner party, uh, it would just be male only. The guest list would often include friends, business partners, members of the same social class. So this guy that invited Jesus, he's a Pharisee. Apparently he's quite wealthy. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, club members or even clients. Remember, most of these people had businesses and they would invite their clients. Um, dining space. If you were not wealthy enough to own it, you would rent it. Kind of sounds like today, doesn't it? You rent a hall. You rent, rent the church, you rent a fire hall, 
whatever. They did the same thing. Dinner parties were that important, and they would often be that large. Um, formal dinners would start in the ninth hour, which is about 3 o'clock. And a, a formal dinner party would last at least three hours, if not longer. So a three-hour meal is what you're talking about. I can do that, no problem. <laughs> I can probably do that this afternoon. <laughs> but there's, it, it's, this is a very important thing. It did, you just didn't set one up either. So this guy invites Jesus. Um, more than likely, he's rich and owns his own room for it. Remember, for the Last Supper, Jesus rented a room, and they hosted it. Um, but this guy's probably got his own space, this Pharisee. Uh, formal dinner parties, let's see, yes, certainly. Um, so you would then dressed, you would dress for dinner. Uh, you, ever, you ever seen the English show, um, Downton Abbey? Yes. I, it always annoyed me. Why in the world do they bring the gong for everybody to go upstairs and dress and come down for dinner? I'm like, why waste the time? What's wrong with it? It's not like anybody was grubby dirty. I mean, I understand, you know, you've been out there slopping hogs or whatever, and, 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 like, and so you go up to change to come to eat dinner. Okay, that makes sense. But, I mean, they're just wearing nice clothes, and they would go change into formal attire. Well, apparently in the ancient world, the Jews, the Romans, the Greeks, they all did it. You dress. There was special clothing you wore for a dinner party. If you did not own said garments, the host would often provide them for you. So you would go to the house. He would offer you a set of clothing, and you would change, and then eat, and then change back out of them. I mean, that's that's how elaborate these things are. So when I come for lunch yes, this I afternoon, I want comfy pants, right? <laughs> Elastic waist. Elastic waist. <laughs> um, Judicial robes, moo-moos. <laughs> uh, but you dress for dinner. Now, the dining was Roman style, which meant that we, we've talked about this before in the past, that it's a triclinium. This is actually a triclinium. It's three tables shaped as a U. Uh, but you wouldn't sit in chairs. You would lay in lay down with your feet sticking behind you. In this case, the host would be my wife, sitting here. She'd be sitting in the second place. Yeah, I thought but, women weren't allowed. Well, they're not, but <laughs> using the room as they Karen would be the most prominent guest. Because you laid and propped yourself up with your left arm. So you would lay on your left arm like this and use it to prop your head up so that you could eat, which means you're facing that way. So the most prominent guests sat next to the host, but to the right, so that they could see and talk with each other. The least important person would be Joseph over here, um, because he's sitting behind the host, and the host can't see or converse very easily with her. Um, now, over here we have Ken. He's the guy who would probably be master of ceremonies. His job would be to make sure there, the food kept coming in as the servants would bring it into the middle. He would be in charge of making sure the wine is mixed properly so that it was uh, the right potency for whatever was going on. Um, he would send for the entertainment when the time was right. So you would be the, the master. And the rest of you would just be the guests. And you would lounge at the table, and food would be served from a table that would have been here in the middle. And the servants would put it there in front of you. That's how a dinner party kind of functioned. 
Bread was the most important item on the menu for dinner. It was a large, flat, round bread, similar to pita bread. It had been really round. Uh, and it was the main eating utensil. They didn't have forks. Uh, they would use the bread. Guests would tear off chunks and scoop up, uh, you know, whatever it was they were eating, stew, vegetables, or whatever. They would wrap it around meat in a kind of pseudo sandwich. <laughs> uh, but the bread also became the napkin. And this is important to understand uh, because it'll be, it'll show up later. Uh, I think it's a John. But they would wash their hands in a little water bowl. So, I mean, you get greasy and all that from the meat. You dip your hands in a water bowl and then you would wipe it on bread. And when the bread got too soggy, you would throw it on the floor and the dogs would eat it. If you remember, the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Uh, Jesus tells that story, and Lazarus dies, and he goes to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man dies, and he goes to hell. Well, in that story, the rich man would not let Lazarus eat the bread off his floor. That's what he's talking about. The bread that was used to wash your hands with, the, the, to clean your fingers, uh, this rich guy wouldn't let Lazarus pick it up off the floor and eat it. I mean, that's how low this guy thought of Lazarus. I mean, you, you understand uh, that. So that's, that's what they would do. So they'd just keep throwing it in the middle of the floor. Dogs would come through and eat it, or the servants would scrape it up and take it out and throw it to the dogs outside. That's a formal dinner party. The way it worked, you would arrive at a foyer. So a room like this would have the triclinium. And right outside the door, there would be a foyer where the guests would um, wait for everybody to arrive before coming in to sit. Kind of like, you think about it, a wedding reception, everybody waits outside, and then there's the, they open the doors, it's a grand entrance, everybody goes in, finds their seats, um, and then you wait for, you know, the bride and groom. It, it's kind of that sort of thing. <clears throat> um, in the foyer, this is where the servants would wash your feet. So you would show up, and you would get to the foyer, you'd come in, take your sandals off, servants would wash your feet. They would then anoint your feet with fragrant oil. Why? They were dirty. No, they were dirty. They stink. They stink. You're about to lay down next to people, and you're laying out this way, so Caleb's feet would be that way, and they'd be really close to Joe. And Joey doesn't want to smell her feet, so they would anoint them with oil. Um, they would also wash the right hand, because that's what you ate with. And so that would get cleaned, so that you could use it to scoop up whatever was being eaten with the bread. You didn't need to worry about your left hand, because you're using that to lay on while you're there. You're never going to use your left hand. Until it goes to sleep. <laughs> right, until it falls asleep. Um, you would also receive the first cup of wine. This was a ceremony where um, they, as the guests came in, they were handed a cup of wine, and each guest would then pray for the wine. There was actually a Jewish ritual prayer for the wine from the beginning of the meal, and then when you would go in and sit, the um, host would take up the first bread, and he would bless it, and then everybody would eat. Um,
Jesus, as a traveling rabbi being invited to this dinner party, would not have been sitting here. He wasn't the honored guest. Jesus was the entertainment. Um, he's a traveling rabbi. They would have these dinner parties and they would invite them in order to discuss theology and doctrine and, and all that. So he would have been sitting somewhere over here, more than likely. He wouldn't have been very important because that would have been probably the, the, the Pharisee's richest friend would have been, would have been there. Um, so Jesus is not the... He's invited to the party, but he's invited as the entertainment to lead the discussion that that evening would, would be about. So you'd eat, and then Jesus would get up and he would stand here, where I am, and converse with the group while they continued to eat fruit and nuts. So he's sitting over here. Now, these rooms were designed with windows so that the public could watch. Um, the average Jew could not afford a dinner party like this. They might get invited to one, but they couldn't host one. And rich people loved to show off. So there would have been windows so that the poor could watch what was going on and listen in. Um, and that was all acceptable. I mean, that was normal. Uh, they would be out there. So this woman, seeing Jesus... Um, wouldn't have been, it would have been no concern. Nobody would have bothered to chase her off or anything. Uh, having, you know, the people from the city watching the rich dying and all that was, was normal. Um, and for her to wander in to talk with Jesus would have been normal. Uh, nothing unusual there. So that's, that's a dinner party. Questions, comments? So Go ahead, Oh, sure. So, like, if the person outside wasn't invited, they were still allowed to come inside and talk. Right, because they're not going to sit recline at table, but they would come in and talk or, or make comment to somebody. Yeah, so I was going to say, so like, women were not just not allowed to sit and eat, but they could they could be servants or they could come in. And yeah, they just weren't. It was it was a male thing. I, I mean, yeah. I mean, women would do their own parties. Yeah. It's weird because it was kind of that way in Korea. Like, all the men would go out to eat from work. Um, and all the women would go out to eat. They wouldn't mix. And that, that's kind of what it was. Is that, that, that it's not that there was anything wrong with women. It was just that this is men. And the, the men would eat together. And so they wouldn't chase her out, like, for coming in and washing his feet. No. Yeah, that's kind of like, no. they wouldn't be like, get out of here, or whatever. Right. I mean, that's what we see here. I mean, the, the, the Pharisees, like, if Jesus knew who she was, why is he allowing her to do this? Nobody's yeah. chased her out. The servants didn't chase her out. Nobody else at the table's chased her out. Or even questioning, they're questioning Jesus. Why are you allowing this? Other comments or questions? So Jesus was, he was invited, but it could have been like an afterthought or just because, hey, we're having a party, come on and join us. Pretty much. The party was probably already planned, and he was just invited as the extra because he's the traveling rabbi. So great, we got entertainment. A lot of times, um, uh, especially with the Jews, not so much with the Greeks and the Romans when they would do these parties, they often would have dancing girls and jugglers and that sort of entertainment, the, the more burlesque entertainment would have been normal. But the Jews often, uh, at least with the Pharisees, it would be, the entertainment would be discussion of the law um, or the Mishnah or the Talmud. And often it, there would be a rabbi present um, and stuff. And so having... A traveling rabbi coming through town and inviting him would have been, you know, a lot of fun for the guests. 
uh, for it. Anybody else? Excuse me. Okay. So Luke chapter 40, verses, uh, yeah, Luke chapter 7, verses 40 through 43. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him, one owed 500 denarii, and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. To 43, right? Yeah, you're good. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so here's, Simon is the Pharisee who's hosting the dinner party, who's questioned Jesus' claim to being a prophet um, because he doesn't seem to know who this woman is that's touching him. She, we don't know a whole lot about. Simon says she's a sinner. What was she a sinner of? What made her a sinner? We don't really know, but I've heard that she was a prostitute. It says she's a woman of the city, and that could be the meaning of that. She could be a prostitute. She could be the wife or daughter of a tax collector. She could have been an adulteress. We don't know her age. We don't know really a whole lot about her other than Simon says she's a sinner. And she shows up to wash Jesus' feet. Now that's intriguing because what has Jesus done for her? such uh, intense emotional showing of love. Did she hear about the raising of the Probably. The Name wasn't that big of a town. She probably heard about the raising of the dead. She believed who he was. But he hasn't declared who he is. This is early in his ministry yet. And he just arrived in town. It is interesting. We don't know. That, that's, what, that's what's fascinating. We don't know what happened with this woman or where she came from. She's known to Simon, the Pharisee, throwing the, the party. So she's from this town. We don't know what connection Jesus made with this woman. For all we know, she might have been the brother or the sister of the guy who died, or maybe uh, some connection. We, we just don't know. But whatever impact Jesus had on her life, it was so great that she, she comes in and submits herself as uh, the lowest of the lowest servants, washing Jesus' feet with her tears and drying them with her hair. This is uh, part two of our outline, Jesus' ministry in Galilee. 
And we see love's intensity. That's what we see here with this woman. We don't know much about her past. We don't know who she is. But whatever Jesus had done to her, and maybe, she, maybe he healed her. I mean, we know that there were lots of healings. They're not all listed in Scripture. Uh, she may have been healed. And she sees that he's in town. He's at this dinner reclining. And her intense love for him is based on her view of herself. Our love for Christ is based on our own view of ourselves. I know that doesn't sound, that probably sounds weird to think about. That's the point Jesus is making with this story about the two debtors. The guy who only had owed 50 denarii didn't think much of it being canceled. But the guy who owed 500, remember, denarii is one day's wages. So that's just 50 days of wages. Whereas the other guy's 500 days' wages. That's more than a year. It's almost two years. You figure you don't work every holiday, every Sabbath. Um, those who are saved from much, love much. So whatever it is that this woman did or had done, it shows up in the intensity in her love for him, in her care. But it doesn't end there. Chapter 7, verses 44 through 47. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to oh, yeah, that's, no, that's it. We talk about love. Love is demonstrated through action. Here's Simon. He's hosting a dinner party. Lots of rich, important people there. He invites Jesus, but he snubs him. Can you imagine? I mean, that was unacceptable by, by Jewish standards, um, to invite a guest and then to treat them poorly. And Jesus calls him out on it. I showed up. I came to your party. You invited me, and you provided, you provided no water to wash my feet. You left me sitting in here stinking so that everybody's talking about me. You didn't put any ointment. You didn't, uh, you didn't provide a kiss, which the kiss was a kiss of peace, that you were in, in the house with men of peace. You provided nothing. The indication is, is that it's because he didn't really think that he needed the Savior. He didn't need Jesus. Jesus was his guest 
and he'll treat him however he wants. It shows you where he sees Jesus. I mean, he remember, Simon's a Pharisee in a small town. I'm sure he heard about Jesus raising this guy from the dead. That's what just happened. And he invites Jesus to his dinner, and then he snubbed. This is a guy who's a prophet who raises people from the dead. Israel's not seen this since Elisha. You're understanding what's happening here. You snubbed a guy who raised somebody from the dead, and you're treating him this way, and then you want to accuse him because a woman came in and took care of the problem that you didn't take care of. Talk about a slap in the face, right? We must do something. We've been offered salvation and we have accepted it. We claim to love Jesus. We sing all these wonderful songs about loving Jesus. and all. What are we doing about it? Again, we don't know what Jesus' interaction was with this woman, but it was so intense that she shows up to wash his nasty, I mean, the lowest servant washed feet. She washes her feet with her tears, dries it with her hair. I mean, that is just, she realizes how low she is in the presence of him. And yet there sits Simon, can't even bother to do what's normal, traditional, to have a servant wash his feet. Not that Simon would wash the feet himself, but that he would have one of his servants take care of this, and he doesn't do it. He cared so little for Jesus, who just raised somebody from his town from the dead. Mm. I think we snub Jesus a lot. He saved us, but we can't be bothered to serve him. We can't be bothered to do just the, the minimal things. Tell other people about him. Show up in fellowship with the brethren. All those little things. Love demonstrated. We claim to love Jesus, but what are we doing to demonstrate that love? Does the world look at us and go, you know what, there's a guy who loves Jesus. Does the world recognize it? Simon clearly didn't, but the woman did. Luke chapter uh, 7, verses 48 through 50. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Love and faith. They go hand in hand. We have faith in what Christ has done for us. It should generate love towards him. But here's the question. Do we respond like Simon? Or do we respond like the woman? I think sometimes we think that God owes us forgiveness. As we're celebrating Easter this morning, 
He came, he died, he rose. We talk about it. We celebrate it. Does it mean something to us? I think that sometimes we, we've seen the churches that are all into the emotionalism. And it's, you know, all the music and the sobbing in the aisles and, and all that. But that's, that isn't love. That's emotional. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about actually doing that which we've been called to do. I mean, there are all sorts of commands that Christ gave us of things to do. If you love me, tend my sheep. We all have sheep. There are people that we are connected to. Do we watch out for them? Do we make sure that things are going well? Or are we like Simon? We have a big dinner party and make sure everybody's watching. Snub the little guy to make myself look a little bigger. I think we often don't do something because we forget how much has been done for us. Or we don't understand how much has been done for us. Simon certainly doesn't understand. The woman, I don't know, understood, but she knew who she was. She knew her identity as whatever, whatever it was, whether she was a prostitute or some other sinner. She knew how lowly she was. I think we forget. Believers should demonstrate love for God with great intensity. If there is something else in our lives that we have great intensity over, maybe it's sport, maybe it's a hobby, maybe it's a job, making money. If that has got greater intensity than what we are showing for God, what do we call that? An idol. Our greatest intensity should be for things of God. I think we forget it. Coupled with that is actions always speak louder than words. We love that when we're dealing with other people. Don't we? Your actions don't speak love to me. What about to God? We claim love. We claim to love him. But what actions are we taking for him? What are we doing? Are we doing anything? Actions speak louder than words, but we don't want to apply that to our Christian lives because that means we got to do something. We might have to change something. We might have to give something up. We might have to change what we do or how we do it because it doesn't speak love to God. Oh, but God doesn't need our love. He doesn't need anything, so why should we bother, right? But that's not the point. That's not the point. We claim to love him. Comment, question. Get out nice and early. You'll have time to get your chairs. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Father, it seems like such a simple story.
the woman coming, washing your feet. But Lord, it's a demonstration of just how much she understood her place in your kingdom. And Lord, you raised her up because of it to a new level in your kingdom. Lord, help us to have actions that speak louder than words. Lord, that the world would see us and what we do and know that we are Christ followers. That there would be such intensity for you that it would not be a guess at whether or not we're believers. Help us to live that way this week. In your name we pray. Amen.